You know, if I knew three and a half years ago when I started this business, what I know today, I would not do the same thing. And it doesn't mean like, I don't love this company. I'm, I'm definitely super grateful that eWebinar is the product because I love this product. It gives people their time back. And we're, you know, we hear people say things like I'm having my first vacation because of you. Like that's very rewarding. It's the first time that I have a company where we're actually making a difference in people's lives. But I'm now realizing like that there's a new category of entrepreneurs, like solopreneurs or indie, like indie entrepreneurs that are doing it like solely on their own. Like what I kind of wanted to do, but failed. In this episode, you are going to hear from Melissa Kwan. Melissa is somebody that I met in a mastermind when I just launched Podcast Clout around the same time she was just launching eWebinar, which is her software that automates the webinar process and things like teaching your team how to do things, recording SOPs, just think of something that you do repeatedly. She created software that makes it possible for you to only do it once, but still be able to respond live to things like questions or comments. So in this episode, she's going to talk about how she started it and how she built it from nothing to $500,000 in annual recurring revenue in just three years. And while it impresses me, she explains why I shouldn't be as impressed as I sounded. And then we get into the conversation about the difference between revenue and profit. She also breaks down how she got her first 100 customers, and she ends with amazing advice for any business founder. Here is Melissa Kwan. Ever wonder how some people seem to get all the media coverage, but you don't? Go behind the scenes with a TV reporter, national on-air host, and news contributor who's interviewed celebrities, took you inside the Versace mansion, and even stood on a chair to interview basketball legend Alonzo Mourning. Get ready, because Become a Media Maven is the podcast where Christina Nicholson is sharing secrets from her years in front of the camera, in the editing booth, and now behind the podcast mic. Melissa, welcome to Become a Media Maven. I'm excited to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. So you are the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar. eWebinar kind of automates things that you don't have to do over and over and over again. How did you get the idea for this? And you can probably explain it a little better than I just did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, eWebinar to webinar is like email to mail. (laughs) So... um, I mean, traditional webinar, as people know, is just like you being in front of Zoom, talking to, um, you know, a bunch of people, like an online seminar. Um, E-webinar basically automates that process with a video. So you can imagine like product demos, onboarding, trainings, things that you have to do over and over again for your business. We automate that with a video so you never have to do it live um, and give you the ability to respond in real time uh, through text or to respond later through email. So even though you're running these around the clock, you never miss an opportunity for the customer to ask a question and connect with you. So I got this idea from living the pain of doing the same webinar over and over again for my previous startup, which was an enterprise SaaS. It was in in the real estate space. But because we were always bootstrapped, um, I had a really small team. So I was everything except for code. So you can imagine the number of demos, onboarding trainings I was doing on a daily basis 
But at the time, I was also digital nomading. So not only was I doing these myself, I was doing them on complete opposite time zones of my customers. So the first thing I would do when I get to a new country, when I go to my Airbnb or my hotel, would be to check the internet speed. And if that wasn't fast enough, then I would have to find another solution because I I knew that I would have to do another webinar coming up. So that was really my life for five years. And I had dreamt of this amazing product that would do my job for me while I can go and have fun because it just did not make sense to me why I had to be the person that was doing those because they were exactly the same. And it also didn't make sense to hire someone like full-time just to do that. Um, So that was kind of how the idea came to be. And when that company was acquired, um, I decided that this was the problem that I wanted to solve. Okay. Back up. So this isn't your first software you've created. No, this is my third. This is my third startup. Dear God, tell me about the first and the second. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The first one, I mean, the first one was about 12 years ago. I had just quit SAP and I was like, I'm going to start a new business and it's going to be pretty easy. Um, I'm not from an entrepreneur family. So I really had no idea what it meant to start a tech company. I thought I have an idea. I'm going to hire someone to code it. I was so green that I thought code was one language. Like there was one way to create something. So I basically just quit my job. I talked to some people who could code. um, And I hired a guy as a contractor to build up some ideas that I had. Um, And that was kind of the beginning of the first company. We played with like, I want to say no less than 10 different ideas before I almost ran out of money. And I was like, okay, well, let's look at what we have here and what can we make, like, what can we make that somebody would pay for out of all this stuff that we built? So my first company was actually um, a realist, uh, an iPad app that was like a real estate brochure to sell buildings. So when you walk into a building, like a pre-sale building right now, you get a paper brochure that's like really fancy. That's almost like a coffee table book. We were the iPad downloadable version of that. And then if the salesperson logs in, they can get like inventory and things like that. So on the front end, it was marketing brochure, but then on the back end, it was like a sales tool. But that company kind of turned into an agency model um, because we were bootstrapped and, and I was just saying yes to everything. Like everybody wanted a special feature. And then I was like, okay, well, we need the money. So let's build it for them. So what happens at the end of that is you have 20 versions of kind of the same app. So the core of it is the same, but like they're all a little bit customized. So I remember thinking at the time, like I thought it was a product company, but I was talking to a friend of mine and he was like, oh, so you run an agency. I'm like, I don't run an agency. And he's like, well, you build different apps for different people. That's an agency. And I was like, okay, well, that's why this is not a good business model because I was also chasing sales and then chasing the invoice. So um, that was kind of the beginning of my second company when I wanted to stop running an agency, like building specialized apps for different people. Um, I wanted to build a product that we can own, something that we can offer everyone instead. So that was the beginning of the second company, which was Spacio. Um, it was, a, the concept is super simple. It's an open house check-in app. So you walk into an open house, you're buying or selling a home, you are probably asked to check in on a piece of paper. Yep. So we were the iPad version of that. Um, and it was an enterprise solution. We sold it to brokerages and franchises, um, you know, companies like Better Homes and Gardens or Remax or, or whatnot. And they would give it to their agents almost as like a perk. Mm-hmm. 
And so we automated not only the sign-in process for the customer, um, but we automated kind of the, the lead going to the CRM, the automatic email follow-ups and, and things like that. So we were really the first application to deliver real-time foot traffic data um, back to brokerages. So I ran that for five years. That was when I was running like continuous webinars because every time we signed up a new customer, there'd be a bunch of new agents that needed to use the product. And if they didn't use the product, the company wouldn't continue. But the problem was all these agents are independent contractors. So anyone who's run a webinar before knows that 100 people sign up, maybe like 25 people show up. With real estate, like with, with independent, independent contractors, it's even worse. Everybody signs up and no one's actually there, right, in the daytime. So I was basically just living that um, for a few years. And then that company was actually acquired in 2019. Congratulations. Uh, Tell me how that happened. Um, I was actually, I wish that it was a better story. Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, this company's doing really well and I'm going to shop the company and, and then I'm going to, you know, 10 times it or whatnot. Frankly, I was just, I was, I was spending about, I think it was like my 10th year in real estate, like first in the business before software, I was like in the real estate business. And then my two companies were, were both in real estate tech. So frankly, I was just kind of sick of the company. I didn't enjoy doing what I was doing. I was doing it for a decade and also selling technology to an audience that traditionally do not adopt technology. Like if you look at, you know, real estate agents, insurance agents, like financial services, they're probably one of the last groups to adopt anything. And when you make software and you sell it to a group that isn't really traditionally used to spending money on what you're selling, that makes your job extremely difficult. So churn was really high, conversion was was really low. And um, because there were always new agents coming and going into the industry, like they're not churning from my product, they're churning from their jobs. So <laughs> there's always like new people coming in that you need to train. So it was just like really exhausting. I wasn't really having any fun. Um, and I remember just talking to a friend like about this, like how I felt. Um, and he, he was running a much bigger company at the time. And he was like, well, we're looking to make our first acquisition. So if you're serious about that, um, we, sh- we should talk, but you have to stay for two years. You can't just sell this and go, which is like fairly common. Um, and at the time we were like the market leader for open house technology. That's amazing. So So I love how like you, you have three startups and one led to the other with mm -hmm. like, you just saw a need for these things. So you have eWebinar and I saw you post that a year into it, you got a co-founder. What's the reasoning behind that? I know a lot of people do this. Tell me why. Yeah. So not only that, my co-founder is also my life partner. I think that was the post that you saw. Oh, so you're stuck either yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually I was, I was so tired of working with other people. Like I just wanted to do something by myself. I wanted to work with a team of contractors. I wanted to control everything. I wanted to create my own destiny. Um, I had a co-founder for my first two companies. We definitely got along. He's like, he's someone I I really trust. Um, While he was a great engineer, he was not a great CTO. Uh, And we had a lot of talks around that and we never really solved it. Um, And part of the reason is because when I met him in my first company, he was straight out of school. So it's not like he worked for much bigger companies and, and learned. Like we kind of just figured it out on our own. 
So because he was not a great leader um, of technology, like he was just a great coder and inventor, it made my journey really difficult um, because I didn't have, you know, we didn't have processes or I didn't have visibility into the product or the team and, and how things were managed. And, and so I was just kind of sick of that, that having no process. And I just didn't know anybody that I could just go start a company with. Um, it's very hard, sometimes impossible to divorce your co-founder. Like that gets really complicated, especially when you're like deep into the company, you both hold shares, like who's going to buy who out, right? So I just went into this thinking, okay, I'm going to hire a dev shop. That's going to be my CTO and product people. And they're going to do what they, they're good at. And then I'm going to do what I'm good at, which is building the business. And I'm not going to touch technology at all. So I actually came into this thinking about thinking that was the structure. It turns out that you can't have a tech company without a CTO who is thinking about your product 24-7. Like having a tech company not without a, a tech leader is almost like having a, a restaurant without a chef. So I just ran into a lot of issues with, with the dev shop. And it's not because they weren't good enough. It's because they, I guess, I guess we both underestimated the amount of work it takes to build a full product, like getting that full product um, out to market and then be able to react fast enough, especially in the beginning, to fix any bugs that causes the product not to work. Like they have to be on call so they have to be full time. They can't just be like, I'm working for you for 30 hours this week and 20 hours next week. So we were kind of running in one running into those issues when we were like maybe a year in, into into creating the product and, and getting to version one. And David, who's my you know life partner and co-founder now, he was always supposed to be kind of an advisor role um, to transition this particular dev shop to a Vietnam team, which I which was what I wanted to do. I wanted this one particular dev shop to build version one. And then I wanted to hire kind of a full-time Vietnamese team um, that just manages the product through another dev shop there. Because again, we're bootstrapped and we have to find, you know, the most cost-effective way to, to build and maintain the product. And we had gone to Vietnam the year before to interview a bunch of these dev shops. So I already knew which shop to bring that to, but they were just not going to be skilled enough to build a full product from the ground up. So David was like complaining about how things weren't built right. And, and I just got super frustrated one day. I was like, well, I don't know any technology. You do, because he he is actually a fractional CTO for other companies. I'm like, why don't you go fix it? And so he actually just started volunteering his time and fixing the product. And, and just through that process, he grew to be passionate about what we're doing. Because before that, like on the peripherals, he's like, well, what's this webinar thing? right? Because he's never experienced a webinar, like he's a tech guy. But as he's building it, he's, he's then seeing the value proposition and, and the place that it could have in the market. And he was spending at that time, like it was the beginning of the pandemic and, and we had literally nothing to do. So he was spending like 10 to maybe 16 hours a day on this product. And I'm like, well, why am I like, and he was just volunteering. So I'm Thanks, like, well, David. why am I, yeah. So I'm like, why am I engaging this company when you are actually doing a spectacular job and I don't have a co-founder? So why don't we kind of rearrange this and why don't we end that, that relationship with, with this dev shop and why don't you become my co-founder and we just engage the Vietnamese team now? 
Because the only reason I couldn't engage a Vietnamese team is because I didn't have a co-founder. I didn't have a tech lead. So I needed the product to go to a certain place before I can pass it to somebody. So that was kind of how, how it happened. And then we had a really honest conversation about what it means to be a co-founder a year in and um, what equity split he, you know, he would expect or he would want for him to feel like part of the company. And, you know, it's, it's like awkward conversations, right? But, but I love that you're having it. Like this is your life partner, but you're still having those conversations. Like it's so important because so many people are like, oh, whatever life partner, it's all the same. It all goes in the same account, like whatever. That's so good. Especially as like a female yeah. doing that, it's so important. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, you have to, right? It just makes me cringe when I hear people say, oh, I have my, I have a business with my life partner, but it's okay. We don't, we don't need to document anything or we don't need to sign any agreements because, you know, it's going to be fine or we, or I don't want to talk about it, but you know, th- things happen, right? I mean, even in a relationship, th- things happen. And I, I'm someone who believes in, you know, documenting things, um, but if you are ever in the future going to bring in external investors and you have to open yourself up to the possibility of that, the first thing they're going to ask you is, let me see your incorporation documents, your shareholder agreement. What's the arrangement between you and your co-founder? You can't just say, oh yeah, we're, we, didn't, we didn't document it because we're life partners. Like, that's <laughs> a huge red flag. So we just treat it like any business transaction. Um, it's the right thing to do, not just for our relationship, but for the business. That's so good. Okay. And you went from nothing to $500,000 in annual recurring revenue in just three years, which I think is super impressive for people who don't know, explain the difference between annual revenue and annual recurring revenue. Yeah. So annual revenue, I guess, is, is just the sum of revenue that you collect um, in, in that year, like in that calendar year, but recurring revenue is, um, how a lot of startups are, are valued, I guess. So you basically take your, your monthly subscription, your monthly recurring revenue that doesn't change and you multiply by 12. Perfect. So you did this in three years to 500,000. And it was funny because in your LinkedIn post, you were like, I'm sharing this. So you can see like revenue is hard getting people to take out their credit cards. It's getting harder and harder. It's harder to retain customers today. A lot of people have unrealistic expectations and it's just like a grind and things don't happen as fast as you see people post on the internet. And like your point in this post was like, look, it took three years to get to $500,000. Almost like this is slow. It doesn't happen overnight. But me, my perception was like, oh, that's amazing. 500,000 in three years. Like I thought it was a lot. Yeah. So let's back up a bit. Right. So um, for a year and a half, the product was not on the market. So the three years is inclusive of like the moment we incorporate, like I incorporated this. Like the, like there was no logo, no name, nothing. It was just like, we're incorporating this company. So now I'm I'm even more impressed because now it's like, okay, you did it in a year and a half instead of three years. So when you break it down, I like, I don't want to trivialize that because it it is definitely an an achievement. And, um, I think around 500,000 or a million ARR a year, like in a year and your recurring revenue is, is when either VCs or, or, um, you know, companies start to take you more seriously or like even partners like start to take you seriously. Like, like at that point, 
people look at you and they're like, okay, like Christina, you're not going away. Like you are an actual business. And that's when business that comes in partnerships that come in, get a little bit easier. Um, but if you break it down, it's like 45 grand a month. I don't pay myself. I haven't paid myself for three years. I can't pay myself. Like David has only started to get 5,000 like a month. Like he's worth on the market. Like with his experience, he, he's 50. He's probably worth like a base salary of like 250, 300 in, in the Bay area. So it sounds like a lot, but it's like 45 grand monthly. So we pay 10,000 a month just to the systems that help us run. So like Amazon, HubSpot, um, you know, all those other subscriptions, right? And then um, our lawyers, our accountants. Okay, that's like fixed. And we were paying that even before we had any revenue. And then we pay, you know, a few people from the Vietnamese F shop. We pay them like 12,000 a month. You know, so when you add all, and that's half the revenue and that's not half the team, right? So it just kind of goes to show like, how lean you have to be in order to be a bootstrap startup. Like if I had this company in North America, like if I hired everybody from North America or like if I had like full-time employees, like I would not be able to run this business. I would not be able to build this without raising like two or $3 million. It would just be impossible. So while like, like, so while I, I, I want to recognize that as, as an accomplishment, like Unfortunately, in the, in the grand scheme of things, like how much it actually costs to run a business, like it, it's not that much. Especially a software business. Yeah. And don't forget, like our starting point is $50, right? Like my previous company was an enterprise SaaS company, right? So every contract was like 10 grand a year to a hundred grand a year. So while it took us a few years to find the thing that people would pay for, once we found that product, it took us a year to get to profitability. When you're making 50, 100, $200 from each person that could leave you at any moment, I mean, there's no contract. You could click the cancel button at any moment. That business is exponentially harder than a service business, like the revenue wise or you know, an enterprise SaaS business. But that's why you know, companies like Calendly or companies like MailChimp that's why they're worth so much money because it is so difficult to get this type of company off the ground. So I came into this, not knowing that I thought, Oh, I built a company before I could build this one. It's going to be similar. I'm now finding what I need to do now, like 10 times harder than what I had to do before. Cause before I would just call someone like a real estate company and say, this is what I'm selling. Do you want it? And so it was way more straightforward because the contract value was bigger and it was a sales cycle that I understood. Right now, we have to convince people to sign up and try the product without talking to them. So they have to find out about us through, maybe it's LinkedIn, maybe it's a blog, maybe it's this podcast. And then they have to convert themselves. And then they have to handhold themselves into creating a webinar. And if they don't like it, they can cancel any time. So I'm now finding that I have to learn all of this new stuff all over again, like stuff that I've never learned before, um, just because I've, you know, I've, I've now put myself in this place. That's, that's pretty foreign. Yeah, I get it. Like with podcast clout, it's the same thing. And I also feel what's different from your past softwares and this one. And like, for me, what's different with my PR agency and podcast clout it's also the mindset of the buyer. Like with podcast clout, it probably averages out to like 
between 60 and $80 a month, depending on what you choose. Mm -hmm. And for some people, their mindset, it's not ROI focused. It's just the expense. And it's like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. $70 a month. That's so much money versus with my agency. You know, you have clients paying you thousands a month and it's just like a no brainer. So you're, it's a completely different kind of audience. So I get you on that. So then what keeps you going? Because this is, you must be a very patient person. (laughs) I'm probably the most impatient person on earth. Because you Um, do this for a long time. Like it takes years and years. And it's like, it's like, it's a slow burn for sure. You know, if I knew three and a half years ago, when I started this business, what I know today, I would not do the same thing. And it doesn't mean like, I don't love this company. I'm, I'm definitely super grateful that eWebinar is the product because I love this product. It gives people their time back. And we're, you know, we hear people say things like I'm having my first vacation because of you. Like that's very rewarding. It's the first time that I have a company where we're actually making a difference in people's lives. But I'm now realizing like that there's a new category of entrepreneurs, like solopreneurs or indie, like indie entrepreneurs that are doing it solely on their own. Like what I kind of wanted to do, but failed, like a hundred percent on their own. Like I just listened to this podcast. That was like an interview with, um, with this guy named Peter levels. And he makes like 3 million a year just by himself. Um, he has many projects. They all like different revenue channels, like one's a job board. And like, I think another is like a high-end job board and another is like nomad list. So if I knew that there are people that have done this successfully, I'd be like, yeah, I would just do this on my own, have a few contractors, have mini projects, or maybe I'd buy something from like MicroAcquire that already has some revenue and just run it on my own. Um, whether I'm patient or not, I think is irrelevant. It's, I think what drives me is the idea of freedom. That's, that's the only reason I do this. Like, I think the, I think the idea that like, oh, you should love what you're doing like, I think that's an illusion. That's false. Like, do I love building a startup? No, I don't love making payroll <laughs> and trying to retain people and trying to recruit them and trying to find customers and learn all this new stuff. But what I do love is the prospect of what this can give me once we succeed. Like I did sell a previous company that, that was life-changing. It gave me some freedom, but it is not the ultimate retirement. It's not the ultimate um, outcome that allows me to do everything that I want to do. And that's what I consider freedom. So I, I'm really just kind of focused on, on the future, which is probably like not super healthy, but it doesn't mean I'm not happy doing what I do. I'm just, I'm happy at the prospect of achieving that one day. And I don't know another way of, of getting there because I can't be an employee. No. And you have the freedom now while you're doing this. I mean, it may not be like freedom, 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 but it's like, you can decide when you work, where you work, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, yeah, I mean, my, I definitely have that. Like I, I call all of my own shots. I don't work in the mornings. I I don't work on my birthday. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't work on, on weekends. Like I do as much or as little as I want. And I love that. But, um, if one day I could achieve financial freedom on top of what I'm doing, like that for me is, is what I'm doing this for. And that's what drives me. Like the idea of that is what drives me. I want to leave with how you got your first 100 customers. You Mm -hmm. mentioned 
writing down, I guess, would it be your dream 100? Is that, is that what the business coaches call it? Every company in your network that you thought could benefit from your product or would be a good connection and, and kind of break it down the things that you did to get your first 100 customers. Cause I think for many people, that's like the struggle. Like, where do I even start to make money with this idea that I've created? Yeah. So I think it helps that I've always been in sales, like since the beginning of time, like my time, like since I was like 18, I was in sales. Um, so I don't have like my strong suit is going out there to, to sell something. And I'm uniquely good at sell, selling something that doesn't exist yet. Um, like a new concept. Cause I've, I've done it many, many times before. So what I did was I, I mean, there's, there's really no magic, right? Like what I did was I got an Excel sheet and I wrote down everybody I knew from my past that could potentially use this product. So real estate brokerages, franchises, my friends who have software companies, any software vendor that I was a partner with before, like anyone, any company that I had any interaction with, I would have, you know, their company, the person I know, or I knew um, the email and then their industry. So it was like easily like sortable. And then about two weeks before the product was ready, um, and this was important because I don't believe in alphas, I don't believe in betas, I don't believe in pilot programs. I wanted this product from day one to be like feature complete in the sense that it could take credit cards and people knew that they were going to pay for this at the end of their trial. Like I was not going to give free access to anybody. So two weeks before I felt like we were there, I just went down the list and I reached out to everybody e either through text, if I knew them well enough or by email, I told them what I was doing because everybody knew I sold my previous company. So in a way they were also curious about my next thing. So I basically just reached out and said, Hey, uh, I've been quiet for a while, but this is what I'm doing. I would love to hop on a call to, to show you, see if um, you guys um, can see if you guys can use this in your company, see if there's any value for you guys. And um, I basically for eight to 10 weeks, I did like 20 to 40 conversations and demos um, every single week. So ironically, I was doing the same pitch over and over. But through that process, I was able to understand customer needs, work those into my pitch and, and really perfect my pitch for eWebinar. And once I felt like I was being robotic about how I was selling it, that was when I automated my own pitch. I automated my own demo with my own product. Yeah. <laughs> and since then I never do live demos like ever. So anybody that wants a demo, they go to our website, eWebinar.com and they just click on like join a demo and they can just watch it either right away or, or choose a time in the future. Like even for my friends, I'm like, there's no way I can explain a visual product better than the product can actually pre present itself. But if you have a question, I'm going to be responding to the chat. So there was really no magic. It was just a lot of hard work, a lot of digging into my Rolodex, reaching out to people, being okay with, with getting on the phone, being okay with, with failing and being okay with people saying like, I actually don't need this, but also being okay with asking for referrals. If people are like, Hey, this is really cool. And you're exhausting your contact list because you know, that does happen. The best thing you can do for yourself is like, Hey, like who else do you know? Um, who can benefit from this? Can can you introduce me? I think that is a perfect place to land. Like you 
wrapped it all up so succinctly. Is there anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? <laughs> um, well, definitely check out ewebinar.com if you're curious about what we do. Um, and if you want to connect with me, if you have any questions at all, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Yes. And I will leave her LinkedIn in the show notes as well as Melissa's Twitter handle. So you can follow her on Twitter as well. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can find me on Instagram. I am at Christina all day. And don't forget to tap that subscribe button if you haven't already. Share this with a friend, a colleague, or a family member. And if you have any ideas for a podcast episode, I am at Christina all day on almost all social media. And I'm happy to hear what you think should come next here on Become a Media Maven.